When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, good morning. How are you? Yeah, I am not in my studio. I am at the Fairfield Inn. I shouldn't tell you this, but I am at the Fairfield Inn in Bowling Green, Ohio. That's right, at Bowling Green, Ohio. And I'm just, we got breaking news from last night. Uh, Tommy Lauren uh, was involved in an incident. Students were violent, apparently, shutting down her speech at the University of New Mexico. And we're going to have Tommy call in here in about 15 minutes or so and talk about it. What are we doing in this country? Where is free speech? And why do we give a rats about college kids and their little thoughts and their little uh, problems? And oh my God. But anyway, I want to talk to Tommy about this. Um, her, her quote was, human basic decency has gone out the window. These leftists, these leftists know they are protected, can get away with anything. Um, it's, ex- it's extreme. It's sad. It's awful. And we're going to talk to Tommy coming up here at some point in the morning. And welcome. We're also going to have Tony Dungy coming up at 10 o'clock. Looking forward to that. Dave Hookstead is one of our great writers, Big Ten guy. We're going to talk some football with him and a special that he has. And, of course, we're going to get you set up for all of your bets. Jeffrey Clark is going to join us from Outkick the Bets. Last night, here's what I think. I'm going to give you what I think. Chargers taking on the Chiefs. From a football perspective, to beat a man, you got to beat the man. I mean, you got to beat the man. You just can't show up, uh, play hard, and lose. That's what happened last night. And look, I am taking a completely different view than maybe everybody that covers football. I don't care how hard you played. I don't care how well you played. I don't care who's hurt. You got to win. Because all we remember is winning. You got to understand something. When I was coaching, I thought graduating players. I'm looking out of my window here. There's a new Stroh Center here at Bowling Green. I raised damn near all the money for that. That's true. I didn't get a chance to coach it. Why? Because I lost my three best players my last two years was playing with football players lost. So some other guys are in there coaching. But I raised the money for it. Graduated every kid. So I have changed my opinion. I thought all that stuff mattered. I don't care. Justin Herbert, you're hurt. I hope you get better. You are a freaking stud. You made a bad pass. The Reed kid or the Watson kid, Jalen Watson, intercepted it, and he went 99 yards, and it's going to be one of the big plays in NFL history. But the bottom line is you got to win. I was so freaking tired of hearing criticism of Patrick Mahomes this offseason. Like, you got all these mouths, right? When you're an idiot, you got a mouth. We all got mouths. But idiots talk in the NFL – and we, for whatever the reason, listen to him. Tyreek Hill, bad-mouthing the guy who really made him, Patrick Mahomes. People questioning Patrick Mahomes. Stop it. Stop it. Till these guys beat Patrick Mahomes, I don't want to hear it. I don't. I know a lot of people do want to hear it. Oh, man, you don't understand, Josh Allen. Yeah, okay, beat Mahomes. Oh, man, Justin Herbert's the next up. Beat Mahomes. Well, it's more than just Mahomes good. Beat the Chiefs. Well, you know, yes, I do understand. I mean, I watch Patrick Mahomes and I watch the Chiefs, and I think one thing and one thing only: confidence. They know they're going to beat you. 
Now, they're not always going to beat you, and they're not always going to go. Well, they're not going to go undefeated. No one's gone since 72, for crying out loud. But I'll tell you this. They know that they're going to beat you. They do. And it is fun to watch. It is fun to experience. It is a golden era of football, certainly a golden era in freaking Kansas City. All right, the broadcast last night. Look, let's start with this. If Al Michaels and Kirk Herbstreit are doing the game, it's a great broadcast. Yeah, I don't care. They could be doing uh, me shaving my head. It's a great broadcast. They're terrific. Al Michaels, 77 years old. Kirk Herbstreit in his first NFL game. They are terrific. Here's a problem they had last night, and it's really the only problem. Problem you had last night is you got to get the crowd noise right. Arrowhead Stadium or whatever they call the place is one of the great noise stadiums. I say it all the time. When you watch a game at certain places, it isn't that much fun. Like Oklahoma, the basketball arena can be packed. Texas, the basketball arena can be packed. But watching a game there is dull. Mackey Arena. Beautiful place to watch, listen to a game or watch a game on TV. And yes, I said listen on purpose because last night the problem you had was the listening. It sounded dull. They didn't get the acoustics of the uh, of the crowd filtered into the broadcast. And so when you do that, it makes a broadcast sound lethargic. It makes a broadcast sound slow. That's the only thing that I would say. Look, at least where I was watching it here in Bowling Green, you couldn't tell the difference between streaming and network by the picture quality. It's really amazing. Like, it really is fascinating. Like I was thinking about this with Al Michaels. Al Michaels first jumped on the scene with me anyway. I don't know about you guys. 1980, Miracle on Ice. Do you believe in miracles? We all saw it. I was in high school. We all went nuts, right? Everybody's patriotic. Everybody's running the streets. We're all excited. But Al Michaels became that guy, right? Then he was Monday Night Baseball, a lot of different things, okay? So Al Michaels jumps into this. And if you'd have told Al Michaels in 1980, I was thinking about this, actually, my wife, Lee, said, if you'd have told Al Michaels back in the day that at some point he would be calling NFL games for a streaming service on the internet, for a shopping company, First, his head would have imploded. It would have spun around. Go watch The Exorcist, Linda Blair and The Exorcist. What? Seriously. You're going to be calling a game, NFL game, on this thing called the internet, streamed. What do you mean streamed? I got CBS, NBC, ABC, CBS. Or let's go 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I got ESPN, ESPN. You can go back as little as 10 years and tell them. He knew what the internet was. You know, we're going to stream this on a channel where drunk prime, excuse me, drunk Amazon priming is a $2 billion business. Meaning you sit around, you drink, you're drink. Hey, let's buy something. Next thing you know, a bearskin rug shows up at your house. Like what happened with me? True story. It's a $2 billion industry. Drunk Amazon priming. Oh, by the way, you're going to be calling games on that. You're what? NFL games are going to be on that. I'm what? Wait, well, Fox, CBS, what are you talking about? Monday Night Football. Did Monday Night Football go to a streaming service? No. No, it's really interesting. 
it, it, it's it's really really interesting. Look at my wife bringing in coffee once again. You know, if somebody would have told me, "Hey, Dan, you're going to host a national show from the Fairfield Inn in Bowling Green, Ohio, uh, uh, with Tony Dungy as your guest," I'd have been like, "I don't know, man." So anyway, Al Michaels does it last night. They got to get the daggone thing figured out. They got to get the audio figured out because audio is a really, really uber, uber important part of the viewing experience. You know, I know audio comes into play. We all know audio comes into play when you're on TV, but audio is so important. And they didn't really have that. That was the one thing that I would say. All right, let me go back to Patrick Mahomes. Is Patrick Mahomes the most dynamic passer we've ever seen? And I'm going to tell you, yes. And I'm going to tell you, it ain't close. When I say it ain't close, I'm telling you, it ain't close. I mean, when Patrick Mahomes rolls out, let me go this route with you. When Patrick Mahomes rolls out and he's rolling out to his right and he's surveying the field and he's looking around and he's going, where am I going? What am I doing? Where am I at? You know what happens? You and I both go, something great's going to happen. Like something unbelievable is going to happen. Something is. I'm telling what, what I can't wait to see. And, and it always does. It always does. Good or bad. Sometimes the ball, you know, gets fit into, uh, I don't know. Sometimes the ball goes to the other team. Sometimes the pass is incomplete. But when he's rolling out looking, I'm like, what in the heck is going to happen here? Patrick Mahomes, I don't know, 233 yards, couple touchdown passes, I don't know. He throws one underneath, underneath the arm of a guy. You ever seen anybody do that? Have you ever seen anybody do the things Mahomes does? He's running. Guys are coming. He's pushing guys away. He's looking left. He's looking right. Next thing you know, he takes it and he flips it. And you're like, what in the heck just happened here? What happened here? What? He threw a pass under a guy's arm for a touchdown yesterday, rolling out to his right, stepping off his back foot and slinging it underneath. There is no more dynamic man or passer in the history of football than Patrick Mahomes. And don't at me. I'm not saying he's the best. Best I ever saw sling it was Danny Marino. Danny Marino slung the caca, baby. I mean, he slung it. But I got to tell you, Patrick Mahomes is the most dynamic. I mean, I watch everybody play, and I've watched them my whole life. Sundays, football, me usually, except when I was uh, coaching Bowling Green, you know, and I was busy on a Sunday. Maybe we were traveling. I don't know. but so, And I've seen – I think I've seen most. I'm going to ask Dungy this coming up. Tony Dungy's joining us coming up here at 10 o'clock, and I can't wait to talk to her. You know what? I had no trouble viewing the game last night. I had no trouble seeing what was happening. And I loved every minute of watching Patrick Mahomes. He is by far, I can't even tell you who's second. Like, who would you say is second to Patrick Mahomes in terms of doing all of the things that Patrick Mahomes does with the football? I've never seen him like He's the Steph Curry. But Steph Curry, here's what Steph Curry gets. Steph Curry gets the benefit of going down the lane and no one's trying to kill him. Patrick Mahomes, everybody's trying to kill him. And he just steps. I mean, it is fun. To enjoy Patrick freaking Mahomes. That's all I'm going to say. All I'm going to say is enjoy Patrick Mahomes. Enjoy him today. 
enjoy him tomorrow, and don't think for a second that what he's doing is normal. All right, did the NBA get this guy, Robert Sarver's punishment right? Robert Sarver is the owner of the freaking Suns. And I waited a few days to see what was going to happen here. And I should probably wait a little more to see if, well, the commissioner caves. I'm not saying he will cave, but it feels like he's going to cave. And I'll tell you why. Robert Sarver is a guy that when you read what he did, it's asinine. I mean, it's just asinine. There's no other way to put it. And I don't think, Meg, that that gives me uh, a dollar in the, in the swear jar. I don't think that word does. I think that word's okay. But long story short, this guy did things like pull down a guy's pants. He pants one of his employees. Rude comments to women, right? Dropping the N-word. Now, he's saying, well, I did it to quote someone else. Well, you're an idiot. Now, you want to know what privilege is? That's privilege. That's a guy. And I don't know if it's white or black. I think it's more wealth. I think it's more well. You know, I'm the boss. You got to listen to me. I got to do my thing. So this guy gets a fine, and this guy gets a year suspension from the league. And guys are mad about it, and rightfully so. You know, look, when LeBron James steps up and does something, I don't necessarily take it as he's being earnest. I take it as he's being political. I take it as he does the old, which way is the wind blowing? Chris Paul, probably the same way. But I don't blame him for being upset. I don't blame him at all. So now you've got the minority uh, owner of the team coming out and basically, not basically, saying, hey, look, Sarver, step down. Step down as the majority owner. Now, I got to tell you what I'm doing if I'm Sarver. Uh, there's two words for it. These nuts. That's what I'm telling everybody. Hey, yeah, these nuts. I ain't, I ain't stepping down from nothing. You don't get many chances to be an owner of an NBA team, an NFL team, a Major League Baseball team. And if the commissioner decried that I am not losing my team and Adam Silver said I'm not, if I'm Sarver, I'm like, yeah, I ain't doing it. Not ain't happening. Complain all you want, but I ain't dropping out of this. Well, it's going to hurt your team. Good. I own it. Then it'll hurt me most. We'll fight back from this. And then you got billions, so you need to devise a plan where you rehab not only your image, but you rehab the team's image if you're going to stay with them. So the minority owner says, look, I don't want to be the majority owner, which may or may not be true, but he's calling for Sarver to leave. LeBron James uh, says the penalty is too light. Chris Paul, his own team, says the penalty is too light. It's horrible. Here's the deal. Probably was too light. Probably was. But I always look at what's real. What is real? Tell me what's real in this situation, not what's reported. And if what's reported is actually real, then this guy probably should step down. This guy has no place in ownership uh, in the NBA. None. Zero. And not because of what he did, because he's too stupid. If you sit there as an arrogant white dude and you think you're going to drop the N-word for any reason at all, you're an idiot. I'm just telling you, you're an idiot. I always have a picture of smug dudes, white or black, I don't care, rich dudes. <laughs> well, you know, bah, 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 bah. shut up. You're too stupid. Coach Knight used to say to me, either you don't listen or you're too stupid, which is a doc. It should not be like, Coach, you know what, man? I listen to every word you say. I, I think you're the high priest of everything. But sometimes I'm just stupid. I'm a human being, and sometimes I'm just dumb. Yeah. 
So anyway, I think the dude shouldn't resign. If I'm him, I'm not resigning. Because here's what happens when you resign. When you resign or you give up your team, what happens? You become like Kleenex. You become the name associated with the thing. You know, right now, Donald Sterling. But if you stay in the public eye, if you stay in front of it, if you keep trying to rehab your image and you're smart enough to hire a professional to help you do it, then you can at least over time have the chance to garner your respect or the respect of your players, your peers, and everybody back. But if you leave, all you become is a punchline. That's it. That's it. You become the guy that you become Donald Sterling. Well, Donald Sterling was saying racist Donald Sterling. No, 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 no. Don't do that. So I get it. You want me to quit? All right, great. I quit. But I ain't quit. You can want me to quit, but I am not doing it. That's how I would approach it. Now, I'm not saying that's how he should approach it. Yeah, I am. That's how I would approach it. I got to tell you, and Tommy Lauren is going to join us, I believe, Dylan, coming up here fairly soon after what happened last night. We'd like to find out, get to the bottom of this. Uh, Anyway, $10 million. And I got to look up a word here. $10 million for a Michael Jordan jersey, game one, last dance year, Utah playoff, uh, NBA championship. Well, somebody explain to me. I, I don't understand at all. Will somebody explain to me why? Just tell me why. They called it the magnum opus of sports memorabilia. It's the highest paid anyone's ever paid for sports memorabilia. You want to know what magnum opus means? I will tell you. A large and important work of art, music, or literature especially one regarded as the most impart or important work of an artist or a writer. Game one, Warren Jersey, Michael Jordan, 10 million. Let me read it again. Regarded, this is magnum opus, as the most important work of an artist or a writer. In this case, Michael Jordan would be the artist. He ain't the right. What do you do? I always said this. What do you do? I just paid $10 million for that thing on my wall. Now, you talk about the ultimate ego thing. That's the ultimate ego thing, and there ain't no second. Hey, uh, Jennifer, uh, uh, Lee and I would like for you to come by the house. Uh, we're going to show you a vintage Michael Jordan game one, last dance, Utah final. 1998 worn jersey. What? You, you know, Michael, did he give it to you? No, I paid 10.1 million. You did what? You, you, you what now? Now, now, many, many people, it's not hard to be, but many, many people are way smarter than I. So they may say, well, Dan, you're an idiot. That thing will go for 20 million in two years. If it does, then God bless you. If it's an investment like that, then God bless you. But I got to tell you right now, it ain't. It ain't doubling. The height of Michael Jordan mania until he passes away, unfortunately, that's the way the memorabilia business goes, is right now. Is uh, Tommy on? Tommy's here. 
Hey, Tommy, Dan Dockage, what the heck happened last night? <laughs> um, you know, I'm still trying to piece it together myself, but I'll tell you this. Um, they had a, a group of leftists acting like typical leftist Antifa. And unfortunately, the University of New Mexico doesn't seem to care not only about my safety, but the safety of their own students and uh, left us all barricaded in a room with basically rabid banshee animals trying to bust down the doors to get to us. Um, state police had to be called. Albuquerque police had to be called. The emergency response team had to be called. And uh, I spent most of my night hiding in the back of a kitchen. So, so you the cliff notes. <laughs> <laughs> so hey, let me walk you through. You were giving a talk at the University of New Mexico. You were supposed to do it in the student union. But it ended up, so people can get a visual here, uh, of you having to be protected and, in fact, barricaded in a room in the back, as you said, in the kitchen, as a bunch of New Mexico students were trying to get at you. And I read while they were chanting all these vulgar things towards you. Does that sum it up pretty good? Well, we were actually in a room in the student union. So we had a room blocked off. We knew that there was going to be a protest. You know, there's F white supremacy. So it, this has been going on for a couple of days. The university was well aware of, of planned protests and that they were coming. And this happens, you know, every time I go to a campus, usually there's some kind of a resistance, which is fine. You know, I love the First Amendment. But we were in a room and, uh, of course, the doors were closed, kind of like a, a banquet hall type of room in the student union. And these protesters were not uh, supposed to be allowed to get into the actual student union. They were supposed to have to stay outside in the courtyard. But they overwhelmed the campus police and busted in. So they were trying to get in the doors into our room. Uh, so we're in like a conference room type of a, an atmosphere. And they're trying to bust in the entire time I'm doing this speech. And they're pushing officers, assaulting officers, trying to get in. And at one point, um, the fire alarm was pulled. It was just kind of mass chaos. And then they rushed me back into the kitchen where they had to call in emergency response and I had to leave in an armored vehicle. So uh, then the protest continued. Um, my biggest thing is I fear for the students. I, I was escorted out. They made sure that I was safe uh, when state police got there. But what about the students that were left in that room? I don't know how they got home last night. And that is what terrifies me the most. How many, how many students are, two questions, how many students were in the room with you when you were giving this speech? Uh, second question, has it been, you know, we, we all know that, you know, Antifa flies people in, they come in, they're, they're representing something that they're not. Who were the people, in your opinion, that were trying to bang through and get through the police uh, and, and that forced you to barricade? Who were these people? Sure. Well, in the room, there was probably about 50 to 75 students. I mean, everyone was kind of spread out. You know, they were just there to listen to me. These are largely the, the TPUSA uh, members and, and other kids on campus that wanted to come hear me speak. Outside, we don't know the numbers because it was kind of overflowing from the student union out to the courtyard. But at one point, it, it got pretty large, <laughs> large enough to overwhelm the, I think, three campus officers that they had planned for this event. Um, but yeah, the people that were organizing it, it, funny story, if you look on my Twitter, I think he has now deleted it, but there is an individual who organized this whole thing that earlier in the day was actually on Twitter going back and forth with my fiance about uh, how I was a racist and this, that, and the other. And then come to find out he was the organizer of the event. And after doing my due diligence and a little bit of research, I found this guy is not only Antifa, but he has been previously arrested for threatening to put his girlfriend in a meat grinder.
So that just gives you a little bit of an idea of what we're working with here. Um, I always felt like if I were going to get arrested for something like that, I'd have been in jail for a little bit of time. But maybe that's not the world that we're living in right now. So these he was not a student. So were the people coming in students a combination of students and outside folks? Oh, he was a student. No, these these are students. These are by and large. These are University of New Mexico students. Yeah, that they consider themselves, you know, Vantifa, the the whatever they are. But this this is mostly students. You know, I what I call them. My affectionate title is the Green Hairs. Um, the liberals on campus, and they show up to a lot of my events. But this was a different breed of of liberal. I will tell you that because they were violent and they were rabid, and they wanted to get in that room. I don't know what they would have done had they gotten into that room, but it was at at some point. Obviously, everybody was very concerned because, you know, there's some videos going around on social media. Of course, everybody had their phone out recording it, but they were very close to busting through that door. Um, at one point, they told us that shots were fired. Turns out that was just to cause chaos. There was no shots fired. But, you know, I'm in the back of the kitchen and the couple officers that I had with me are, you know, telling me to duck under the plates and away from the windows in case someone starts shooting inside. And I'm thinking all because a conservative wanted to speak at 7 p.m., in a student union room on campus, all of this for that, unbelievable. It, it, yeah, I always go to the end game, Tommy. I always go, all right, what did they want to do? Do you think, let me ask you something that you can't answer. But given given the violence that was going on, you said, you know, they pushed through police outside. They're trying to get through doors, that kind of thing. You had to feel like your life was in danger when you're told, you think they would have killed you? Do you th- I mean, do you, like, has there been any reports? You said you didn't know what happened, but have there been any reports of things happening to the students that were actually the 60 or so that were in there listening to you? That's what I'm most worried about because, you know, let's keep in mind, I get to leave this godforsaken place. <laughs> Those students have to go back to school with their fellow classmates that looked like they wanted to rip them limb from limb. So that is what really terrifies me. I'm never coming to Albuquerque again. I'm sure that's what they want. <laughs> but I think what they wanted to do, I don't know if it was just to intimidate me. You know, I've seen a lot of liberals just want to intimidate and try to shut down events. That's what I'm used to. These were different. I don't know what they would have done to me had they gotten in there. Um, I don't know if they would have tried to hurt me, if they would have thrown things at me. I don't know if they would have tried to take me out of there. I have no idea. But all these Antifa-related accounts and these far-left accounts all over Twitter are, uh, are celebrating it, that they got my event shut down and they had the police called in. But that's another thing, Dan, that, that's really bothersome to me is this is what they do. This is a tactic. They want to run up the security costs of these events so that conservative groups can no longer afford to bring in people like me. That's what they want. Not only do they want to hurt us and intimidate us and feel big inside, they want to try to keep conservatives off campus. If it's not by actually hurting us, it's by making sure that the expense of it is so high that it can't, it can't happen anymore. And unfortunately, this has happened more than once. In their view, they've won. Oh, yeah. No, they're they're very proud of themselves. I'm sure they went back to mom's basement last night and had a PB&J and felt really big about themselves. Um, Quite disgusting. But I also, speaking to the organizer of of my event, my TPUSA event, you know, there were no arrests made. (laughs) So even though state police had to be called in, Albuquerque PD had to be called in, the emergency response team had to be called in, they just had to disperse these people, but they weren't arrested. Now, I just think to myself, if conservative students were doing this to a liberal speaker, I have a feeling the University of New Mexico 
probably would have had some steep consequences for these individuals. But because it's the other way around, they turn the other cheek and look the other way. Yeah, I feel like the school would have been shut down. A search would have been made. Cameras would be used. There would be a, uh, we have to keep everybody safe. So we must find who these people were. Where is it? Where the, where the, uh, politics switched on this. I want to go back to something else that you said. You said this is not the first time. When you go speak somewhere, uh, do you anticipate, like, hey, look, I know what's going to happen here. Not to this level, but you said this wasn't the first time. This has happened on pretty much every time I go speak somewhere. And usually it's just a small group of, you know, masked green hairs that are upset that I'm there and they want to, you know, yell the F word at me and it's not a big deal. But this was this was certainly different. Um, I spoke at Clemson last year. They had to have a huge police response. There was a huge BLM protest. So pretty much everywhere I go, I'm used to this, you know, to some degree. And unfortunately, most universities uh, have failed to do anything. Um, they they just don't seem to care. And this is the safety of not only someone that's coming to speak, but their students. And I've seen it time and time again. The universities they don't want to seem like they're anti left. So they just let it happen and, and they don't worry about the safety and security of me or the people that are attending the event. If there were my kid in there and they didn't do anything about this, I would be hostile. What, well, let me ask you this question. When I, when I was doing college basketball games at ESPN, I had the entire 12,000 people at Michigan State, the crowd chanting, we hate doctors. Okay, literally, it's on my ringtone. I love it. What? <laughs> And it was because I was critical of Michigan State as a basketball team. So that's basketball. That, that doesn't even matter. What do you think is there about your particular message that brings out violence? I'm not saying what's your message that people disagree with. I'm saying what about your message do you think that makes people violent? Oh, they don't like that I don't back down. They don't like that I am not scared of them. Am I going to lose my life to go speak at University of New Mexico? No. But are they going to keep me from going to other campuses? Are they going to scare me? No, they're not. And they hate that because that's what they live on. They have to intimidate. They get in this mob mentality. And let's not forget, if these individuals are alone, they're mighty weak. But when they get together and they can you know, mob together, they feel big about themselves. But they don't like me because they know that I don't back down. And they're used to conservatives backing down. It's the same reason they hate people like Donald Trump. Ron DeSantis, the rest of them, they like weak conservatives who apologize. I won't apologize for my beliefs, and they are dead set on trying to find a way to make me pay for it. They're going to have to keep trying, though, because <laughs> I got other speech lined up, lined, lined up this year, and uh, I'm going. Uh, you're not going to keep me away from a campus. You know, Tommy, what, what you just said um, is interesting. Like, you, how do I put this right? Like, when you take off the mask of these Antifa folks, my God, do they look like little dip. I'm not supposed to swear on this show, but you know the second <laughs> part of dip, right? You know, you, yeah. you know, it's like, wait a second. Why don't you come see me, just me and you? You know what I mean? Like, whoa. Yeah. It, it's, it's time and time again. That's what I'm confronted with. But it's because they are protected. They have been protected. These individuals know that they are protected. You can't touch them. They have some, they're in some kind of a protected class, whether it be their, their pronouns or life choices, whatever it is, they know they're protected. And they know they can do whatever the hell they want 
and they can celebrate it and that they can high five their, their nerd friends about it. And they know that they, that they exist in this bubble. And unfortunately that bubble is not going to be popped either by law and order or by people like me and other conservatives, which I told last night, because there were a lot of people in that room too, that were very angry at what was going on, right? Other students that were angry that we were dealing with this, but I told them very loud and clear. They want you guys to go out there and fight them. All right. I like your chances, <laughs> but right. that's what they want. They, they want you to go out there and they want you to be violent right back so that they can look at you and say, oh, look at these Trump supporters. That's what they want. So don't give them that. Don't give them that pleasure because that's what they're trying to bait you into doing and never fall for it. Tom, I, I go back to the Michigan State thing. No athletic director, no president ever apologized to me, ever said, hey, look, Dan, you're a guest in our place. Hate is no good. We Nobody ever did that at Michigan State. Did anybody in administration say, uh, Tommy, we're really sorry here. Have you heard from anybody at New Mexico? Oh, no, not at all. But I'm going to continue yeah. to blast, you know, blast the University of New Mexico because they need to answer for it. I don't need an apology. I quite frankly don't care. I'm not a student. None of my dollars are going to the University of New Mexico. But I'll tell you what, if I was a student that went there with paying tuition dollars that knew that that university essentially left me barricaded in a room with wild animals outside and didn't care, oh, boy, would I be hot. So I'm doing everything I can today to get the message out there because I want the university to be held accountable. And I want them to know that we're not going to stop bringing in conservative speakers, but you guys better treat your students better and you better put their safety first. Let me ask you last thing before I let you go. I know you're busy. Um, what's the, like, do you have to now or in your mind, and I know your father was there, do you have to now walk in like you're the freaking Pope or like you're the president where you got a, <laughs> you know, a SWAT team around you just to go to the Indiana Memorial Union or whatever the heck it is? You know what I'm saying? Is that, is that how you feel? Uh, you know, I don't live my life that way. I know that right. there's a lot of other conservatives that, that bring security with them. And, this, you know, I'm smart. I'm wise and where I'm going and where I'm at. And luckily, I live in a, in a great city in a great state, Nashville, Tennessee. So I don't have to worry about this BS where I live. Thank goodness. That's why I left L.A. Um, but listen, I'm I'm always going to go to my events prepared. We're going to make sure we have police. I'm going to make sure that, you know, there's security there and, and we anticipate these kind of events. But I'm not going to walk around in a bubble and have people around me and live my life that way, because in, in a way that that also allows them to win. Um, I'm, I'm always aware of my surroundings. I've always had to be in this career, but they're not going to keep me fearful. I just don't live that way. You know, it's funny. My wife told me, and she's been so right. There've been hit pieces written on me ever since I went to Outkick. You know what I mean? Like, man, when you get in the political right. realm, it's a whole different level, right? It's a whole different level of hate. Oh, it absolutely is, and I think it's only going to get worse as we get closer to midterms and into twenty twenty four. So we just all have to be really smart about it. We have to rise above and just expose these losers for who they are and what they are. Because once you get them one by one, and you can, you know, point out who they are. Uh, when they're not in that mob mentality, they're not so strong. So we're going to keep exposing them and the universities that allow this kind of thing to happen because it's unacceptable. I guarantee your dad is really proud of you. I mean, I'm just telling you, you're a stud. I mean, seriously. I mean, I have a daughter. My daughter's 25. Have an and she's got your attitude, school teacher, actually in Nashville. And I guarantee your dad is like, man, I raised a strong woman. Seriously, speaking as a father, that's awesome, man. <laughs> no, I'm, I was is. happy I could have my dad with me, but we're, when we're barricaded in the kitchen last night, I looked at my dad and he said, well, you know, dad, this is what happens when Tommy Laren comes to speak on campus. You know, the state police are called, so I hope you're proud. 
Damn right he is. Hey, are you enjoying OutKick? Oh, I love OutKick. I love being with all of you guys. And, you know, I, I know that uh, you guys mostly do sports with a little politics, but we're having some fun, and I'm happy to be a part of the team. And we got to get you out to Nashville at one of these points, too, so you can you can come sit on the fearless set with a little bit of pink neon. I think it would look great on you. Yeah, yeah, I'm good in pink. I am. I'm not afraid either, I'll tell you right now. Every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday, 7 o'clock, you can hear and see Tommy, I'm just telling you, man, it's a badge of honor you're wearing. It really is. Uh, I appreciate that. And now back to a, a state where they don't allow this kind of thing to happen. Boy, do I love Tennessee. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Tommy. You're the best. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. Bye-bye. All right. That's Tommy. Lawrence. How about that? How about we're just going to go give a speech? And all of a sudden, we're going to have to barricade ourselves. I'm telling you, I went to Michigan State. People don't understand this. You're sitting there, and you're looking around, and they're chanting, we hate Dockett. And I'm looking around going, man, look at the faces on these people. They would kill me over a freaking basketball game. All right, we got a great addition with a great thing going on. David Hookstead is going to join us uh, when we come back. He is one of the, if not the best, writer uh, on a lot of different things. And he's on OutKick, which means we're the best. That's how we look at it. You got the best host. You got the best political people. You got the best writers. That makes the damn place the best. Don't at me about it either. We'll be right back. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Man, I'm fired up. Sack the hell up and don't go anywhere. Don't at me. We'll be right back after this. About something going on here at Outkick. David Hookstead is one of the great writers, I think, in the country. I followed him. He doesn't know it, but I followed him and his writing, mostly about Wisconsin back in the day. Now he is with us here at Alki. You've got something called American Joyride going on. I, I want you to explain to people what it is because it's fantastic. Yeah, so American Joyride is a new project we're doing at Outkick. It's a podcast video series. And the, the goal, the purpose, the mission statement is to shine a light on heroic American stories, unique American lives, and pretty much give people a reason to be proud of the USA to, USA uh, again, people are losing faith in America. There's a lot of division. I kind of want to heal that and remind people we've got a lot of great people in this country whose stories just really haven't been told yet. What kind of stories are we talking about? Sports, pilot? What are we talking about? Mostly right now, it's a lot of veterans, a lot of guys who served in Iraq and Afghanistan even earlier. The first episode with Jeff Schrucker was a Black Hawk Down veteran. Mogadishu, 1993, he's a prominent figure in the movie, class act guy. So it's everything. Right now, the first few episodes are going to be with war heroes. And I think that's important because young people, I'm 30, but people maybe 20 and younger, they're really kind of too young to remember that. And a lot of people paid a very high price for what we have. And I think it's important that they learn that. Man, um, how do you find your guests? It's So that's a good question. It started with me reaching out cold to a couple people. I interviewed them at my old job. I kind of gained their trust, proved that I was here to kind of shine a spotlight on them. And then it was just kind of a domino effect. One led to another. They kind of vouched for me. And that opened the door to a lot more of them. But it, I really had to get to know a couple of them to get that ball rolling. And, and I want to go back to something. You've been a guy basically involved in sports. And 
this, I've never talked to you about this. In fact, I've never talked to you. But this seems to be, this has to be a passion project, right? To do something like this. Absolutely. So I've always been a huge fan of the military. That doesn't mean you're a fan of every war we've ever been in, but I love the men and women who serve. I had a family member that was killed in Korea. I actually keep his war medals right off to the side of my desk. Uh, so I have always, I had another relative that fought in Vietnam as a recon ranger. So I've always felt very close to those people. I feel like we just don't really grasp the, the price these men have paid and women, of course, but it's so high and it makes me so angry when I hear people talk so ignorantly about this country and the men and women who serve. So one of my goals is to try to educate people and again, share those stories. For you personally, what irritates you the most when you hear somebody speaking on military? Well, the tough, tough question to answer. When I was at the school of the University of Wisconsin, the Iraq war was going on. I heard a lot of these are baby killers. We're slaughtering innocent people. We're just, we're just mowing down civilians, which of course is complete fiction. Totally untrue. You just watch the biased media. You read biased press. You believe that. That fries me because not only is it not true, no military in the world tries so hard as the United States military to avoid people getting in the way. The Russians, the Chinese, they'll mow down whoever. America, we would rather lose our own guys because we care so much about the sanctity of preserving innocent life than, than purposely do something bad like that. So when I hear that, it sends me through the roof. I guess and that resonates when you talk to folks, you know, when you talk to veterans. I, I would guess that would be the one thing that they would jump up and go, you're absolutely right on. Absolutely. And the one thing they always say is they're pretty classy. Whether They're like these idiots. They just don't know what they don't know. And all they're doing is they're putting their ignorance on display for the world. In the first episode with Jeff Strucker, he does tell a story about how they got spit on coming back from Mogadishu in a New York subway because they were called baby killers. And they spit on one of his friends who was in uniform. And he said that guy almost knocked that guy out. They stopped him. It's it, it makes me upset. I can't imagine how much it makes guys who lost their buddies, who lost their friends, maybe lost limbs. Their brains have been changed through TBI and PTSD. There's no excuse for that behavior. You can hate the war, but you have to understand what we ask these young men mostly to do is is unfathomable to the average person. Yeah, and then some they got to live with the rest of their lives. Absolutely. I mean that's. Uh, American Joyride, check it out at outkick.com. Uh, or go to D Hookstead, H O D H O O K S T E A D uh, on Twitter. It's, it's really good. Um, let's talk some football here. The Big Ten West, I've always said, stinks. Wisconsin is the team. Iowa is this, always. Give me your take. I feel it to be a disaster. What do you feel it to be? Well, the Big Ten West right now is an embarrassment to the Big Ten. It's nine and seven. The Big Ten East is 14 and 0. So you have one side of the conference that's literally pulling all the weight. Indiana is two and 0. They're better than Wisconsin right now, which is one and one. Big Ten West is, is frankly become a joke and it's not even a funny one. Nebraska was supposed to be good. Obviously, they fired Scott Frost. Disaster. Wisconsin's always supposed to be better than they are. We just lost a home game to Washington State. Iowa lost to Iowa State. It goes on. Illinois lost an early one to Indiana. It just goes on and on. It's like a Jekyll and Hyde. One side of the conference is dominant, and the other side of the conference is is struggling to stay above water. Why? Why do you think that is? Like, let, let, let's talk about. I always had the same coach. I feel like they get the same results. Why haven't any of these programs who are big time, big money programs, big investment, big history programs? Why haven't they made made that jump? What there's nothing holding them back, is there? 
Well, I think in a case of like Iowa, they're okay being an eight and four, nine and three team. Occasionally you catch lightning in a bottle, you go 11 and one, you make a big 10 title game with Nebraska. It's just been a string of terrible, terrible coaching hires. And if you go back to the Bo Pelini era, they were winning nine, 10 games a year with Bo Pelini. They fire him because I guess they didn't like his abrasive nature and they thought they could do better. Never have come close to it again. And before that, you had Frank Solich, who got uh, obviously kicked out of Lincoln too. With Wisconsin, we want to be good. I'm a Wisconsin guy. We want the nine and the nine and three, eight and four is not good enough for us. It's frustrating. I don't understand. I think teams are worried, like, oh, if we fire our coach, are we going to turn into the next Nebraska? Will we go from nine and three to three and nine? And at some point, you just got to be willing to accept mediocrity or you have to accept taking the risk. Me personally, I would encourage all those teams, it's better to take the risk than never find out to begin with. I'll throw something out at you. When I when I was at ESPN, I, I became really good friends with all the producers, and they produce basketball, but they also produce football, and they also watch. And I mean, they study. They're just like an analyst or a writer, or whatever. And they always called Illinois, Wisconsin, Iowa, Nebraska. Who am I missing? The thick ankle league, because you guys can never compete. You got all these big thick ankle guys. You need some guys that can run. That whole bulldozer, you know. And I would say, well, you don't really know. Iowa's got good receivers, Illinois. But he's not too wrong. And that doesn't play now, does it? He, unfortunately, there is a lot of truth to that. And part of the reason is you have Ohio State in the Big Ten. They get to pick the best recruits in the region. And why wouldn't they? They're by far and away the best program. They have the best shot to give you the NFL. They have the best chance of winning the college football playoff. So Wisconsin is kind of a team like Wisconsin, Iowa. They're kind of relegated to those three-star players. But having said that, Wisconsin went 12-0 in 2017 in the regular season. We were one game away from the college football playoff. So it can be done. And in basketball, you've seen a lot of teams make deep runs in the tournament. Wisconsin went back-to-back Final Fours. It's just we, we have to be more judicious with, with who we get because there's no margin for error. Alabama loads up every year. They can afford missing on a recruit or two. Wisconsin does not have that luxury. Iowa does not have that luxury. So you, you have to make sure everybody is a hit. Who's Nebraska hiring? Well, I personally think they should call Urban Meyer. Now, people say no that's cra- what people say that's crazy, but look at it this way: there's no coach on the market who's won more that you can get than Urban Meyer. He's won three national titles. Would he do it? I don't know. I think you have to make the call to at least gauge his interest because he's by far away the most elite coach available. After that, I'll throw you out some names that I think would be interesting: Matt Campbell, Iowa State. He's done way more with Iowa State when you look at the talent they have than he should have. And I'll throw you another one that I think you're going to hear more and more about. Jim Leonard, who's the defensive coordinator of Wisconsin, is the top assistant in the country. He turned down the Packers job, defensive coordinator job last year. He's turned down some other major jobs. If Nebraska is serious about kind of that culture of hard-nosed defense, I, I guarantee they're going to call him. I don't know if he'll be in the top three or four options, but they will call him. I think that'd be a great hire, and I think it'd be a shame if, if Wisconsin let him go. Urban's a friend. He's been on our show a number of times. I don't see it happen. I mean, I, I'm with you, though. Look, he, I would have called Urban Meyer before the season started. I'm just telling like, a good AD has a drawer. He opens it up. He's got his list. I, I, and I, he may have. Like, Urban and I talk about – we never talked about this yet. We will. Uh, but that's exactly what I would do. It would be the first call that I would make. I, it would not – I'm not sure there'd be – well, then there'd be a second. But I would – you know what happens in these jobs? It's kind of fascinating, David. Like, I remember when Urban was out there, he sent me a – he goes, look at this package that UCLA sent me. He goes, dang, 
you know, like, whoa, you know, and Nebraska can meet any financial number anybody right. wants, right? There's nothing holding them back. Oh, absolutely not. They have deep pockets even after writing a check uh, for $15 million. And I guess the drawback to the Urban Meyer thing is the, the Jaguars experiment didn't go well. Yeah. Doesn't matter. We're talking college football. Do you want to have one press conference where maybe you have some questions about why it didn't work in the NFL and then go win 10, 11, 12 games a year? Or do you want to hire your third consecutive head coach who flames out in Lincoln? And I feel bad for Nebraska fans. Nebraska fans are passionate fans. They love their football team. It's the biggest sports in the, it's the biggest sports team in the state by far. And, and the school has let them down for 10 plus years now about, but since Bo Pelini got fired. Oh, looking pretty good. And Frank Solich is looking freaking awesome. All he did was go to Ohio U and has a field named after him. Right. He went like 70 or I don't know the number, but he lost 18 games and won like three or four times that, but he yeah. was, you know, too little. He didn't look the papa. I, I love this part. Jimbo Fisher. I've had enough of Jimbo Fisher. I think I've always had enough of Jimbo Fisher. I never root against the guy, but I think I'm rooting against Jimbo Fisher. Well, I don't know if you saw or your viewers saw. They just made a quarterback change. That, that was breaking this morning. They benched uh, Haynes King, I believe is his name, to go with uh, the backup, the former LSU quarterback. Look, Jimbo Fisher is the most overpaid man in America. He plays football like it's a different year. And it, a seven and five season, a six and six season is not out of the question for Texas A&M. They could lose to Miami this weekend. They're going to get steamrolled by Alabama. They're probably certainly going to lose to Ole Miss. I mean, they're, it's terrible. But yet, because he, he had a once in a generation quarterback at Florida State with Jameis Winston, he won a national title. People treat him like he's the second coming of Nick Saban. Show me in the records over the past five years where that's backed up. It's been disappointing season after disappointing season. And I'll remind your viewers, he almost lost to Colorado last year. This almost went off the rails again in 2021. Explain to me why he's making the money he makes, because it makes no sense. If he's making, what, 10? Saban should be getting 40. Uh, Last question, and this is an important one. Does the road to the college football championship run through Indiana University as they sit here 2-0, getting ready to go 3-0 against Western Michigan? Well, you never want to let Indiana get hot. If Indiana gets to 3-0, then they're going to get to 4-0, and then the college football world is going to be terrified. So I would say yes. If they yeah. win and get to 3-0, it's all bets are off. Tom Allen is a great coach. Indiana, Indiana fans are lucky to have him. Don't let them get hot. Do not let Indiana get hot. You know, it's been said forever. Going back to Corso, I mean, I was a kid. My dad took us, and he's like, Dan, uh, I'm telling you right now, I know they're 0-8, but don't let them get hot for the last two because it was only like nine or ten games. Indiana gets hot. That carries over to the next year. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, you got you got any game you like? You know what game I like this weekend? Curious your thought. I watched Syracuse last week, and one of their defensive back, my, my wife's from Syracuse, my stepkids Syracuse, and the def- one of their defensive back, Eric Coley, Comes to our house all the time, basically spends, you know, three weeks. And I love the kids, so I watch them. I'm telling you, that Syracuse-Purdue game this weekend, Syracuse isn't bad, and Purdue's got to get, get a win, got to get a good win. Yeah, I like that. I like Aiden O'Connell. I tweeted that a couple weeks ago. I think he's a really good quarterback, minus when he plays super elite defenses, but not yeah. a lot of talent. That was a great, you were absolutely right, by the way. Couldn't have been more right. I like Purdue to win that game, but I also would, uh, I'm interested in the Michigan State Washington games. Michigan State, you know, they've won their games, I think, 87 to 13 so far, but Washington, that's a team that has a heartbeat. We're, we're going to find out this weekend whether or not Michigan State is as good as they appear to be. So I would encourage people to check that one out. I agree with that. And you were absolutely right because 
Aiden O'Connell makes mediocre to bad defensive look sick, and he didn't quite have enough. He had a chance on the sideline pass. He, he had a chance, didn't do it, where Bryce Young did it. So, you know, my 100-to-1 Heisman shot. You're right. I always a, lot tell of season, people, a lot of season left. A lot of season left. You're right. I'm wrong. And I got no problem admitting when I'm wrong because I'm wrong so damn much, Dave. Appreciate you, man. Thank you. Hold on a second. They're oh. sending me a text. Uh, American Joyride. We're throwing it to a promo right now of American Joyride. There you go, man. Thanks, David. That's it. I got to take a break. We'll be right back with more on Don't At Me across the Outkick Network. Join us. Coach, I'm going to get right into it. You inspired me um, and on a couple of things, and I'm going to tell you what they are. One, uh, my whole career as a basketball coach, giving back to the community was important to me. But when I came to Indianapolis and I really kind of followed what you were doing uh, with dads, it really made an di- impact on me. And it made a huge impact on me. And on my radio show, I get in trouble all the time because I talk about things like dads. I talk about things like incarceration rates. I talk about things about education. My family, my mom and dad were educators in the city of Gary for 51 and 49 years. People really get mad about that, Coach. And you inspired me to, to say, screw it. I'm going to keep talking about it. If you don't mind starting this interview, you, you caught a lot of heck because you basically retweeted what Barack Obama had said about fathers. Would you mind speaking on that? Do you mind speaking on the importance of fathers? Well, I, I've always thought that fathers were important. I'm like you, Dan. My dad was a teacher. He was around all the time. When we were off in the summers, he was off. When we were off on the weekends, he was off. He was at all my games. And I thought everybody's dad was like that. Well, as I got older, I realized that wasn't the case. And as I got into coaching and talking with more and more young men, I realized that it really wasn't the case. And so many of our athletes, as you know, might not have that father figure in the house, but they benefit from the coach. And if they have a great coach, that coach takes up a lot of that slack. But what about the kids that aren't in athletics? What about the people that don't have that? Where do they get it from? So that's that's always been a source for me. And I wanted to teach our young men that I was coaching that they need to do that. They need to step up and be good husbands and good dads, but also let everybody else know the importance of that. So the actual heck that I caught wasn't necessarily from talking about the president. Um, I had appeared with a Republican governor in Florida. And so a lot of people don't think you're supposed to do that because, um, if you don't agree with someone politically, then you can't agree with anything they say. Well, Governor DeSantis signed a bill that gave a lot of money to fatherhood in Florida. And I went there to say thank you. And people thought that was the worst thing in the world you could do. So I had to show the Republic, uh, not the Republicans, but the Democrats, hey, wait a minute. This is the same thing your president said five years ago and said the exact same thing. But if a Republican says it, it's bad, it's wrong. And my point is that it doesn't matter who's in office. If we don't get our families and our homes and our communities straightened out, we're going to have problems in this country, whether it's being run by Republicans or Democrats. Why do you think it's become such a political thing to simply talk common sense about fathers? I I don't understand it. I I do know this, Dan. Uh, Several years ago, I was on a panel with Colin Powell. And at that time, I I just had so much respect for him. And I said, you know what? You need to run for president. We need to this country needs someone like you. And he said, absolutely not, because right now I can say something 
And if people listen to it and they say, that, that's a good idea, that Colin Powell makes a lot of sense. But as soon as I run for president, half the people will have to say my ideas are bad before they even hear them because they don't want uh, my political side to be represented. And that's where we are in this country. It's a, common sense is gone. Decency is gone. I can't, you and I, if, if I'm a Republican and you're a Democrat or vice versa, we can't agree on anything because we're not supposed to. And that, that's ridiculous to me. You've been a lot of places and you've been and, you, and you've seen things. I mean, it's not like you were in the NFL and you didn't pay attention to what all was going on. Is there a way back? Do you see a way back? I think the way back is to really think about what we want to do to make our homes better, first of all, and then make our communities better and our cities better and our state better. If we can think about that and not think about, well, I'm, I've got to be right and everybody else is wrong, uh, you know, th there's some common sense things. If we get kids off the street, if we take care of kids and nurture them, if we get them in school and get them graduating, we get them uh, looking to their futures, we're going to have a better, we're going to have a better life for our entire country. And it, it's not that hard to figure out, but it's hard to implement. I don't know your feeling on this, um, but I went to Catholic school. I was lucky enough. I went to Catholic school. You know, you said the Pledge of Allegiance, the Our Father and, and, and Church on Sunday, you know, and, and all that stuff. How important do you think, how important do you think, not necessarily religion, but having a, a, a discipline in school, how important in your mind is this? And, and, and why don't we have that? Why is that not common sense? I, I don't know. Discipline is important. And if you can learn it in school, that is great and that's helpful. But my maybe earlier question than that would be, why don't we learn that at home now? Why don't we learn to respect authority? Why don't we learn to... Uh, treat people with decency. Um, I can remember, Dan, I was probably six or seven years old, and I'm watching on a little black and white TV with my dad, and the governor of Alabama is standing in the doorway of the school, University of Alabama, saying we will never have Negro students in this school. And the National Guard is out there, and these two young people are trying to register at the University of Alabama, and there's all kinds of things going on. And I'm asking my dad, what, what is this? And he said, you know, not everybody's going to treat you the right way. Not Some people aren't going to dislike you because of what you look like or where you live. But we are not going to do that in our family. We're going to treat people the way you're supposed to treat them. We are going to uh, respect everybody. And so you've got to learn that at home. And then hopefully it gets reinforced in school and you learn things like discipline and study habits. And then your parents reinforce that. that that's what we need to get back to. You know, and I want to make it clear because it, it, to your point, Coach, with people. That, so people hit me up with, well, so you're saying mothers aren't strong enough and can't handle that. That's not what anybody's saying. That, no, nobody's saying that. But I get hit with that. Whenever I talk about fathers, people that just want to disagree with me say, well, but no, mothers are mothers are the strongest people on earth. That's not what we're saying. God put this together, and it doesn't always work out perfectly. But the ideal situation is mother and father both pouring into the kid. Okay? And as men, we have kind of bought into the idea, well, all I have to do is provide. If I 
provide the finances. If I take care of my kids, that's it. Mom can do everything else. And sometimes dads, even when they're there, they don't do a great job of pouring into their kids. So it's not just being in the home and being in a two-parent home. It's men really understanding how important uh, their contribution is. Um, I need to be a good role model for my boys to let them know what it means to be a man in this country. I need to let my daughter see what, what it means to be a man. This is what I need to look for. How can a daughter know what to look for if she never sees a man around the house? Uh, it, you know, that's common sense. Daughters are amazing, right? I mean, daughters will give you a hard time, but boy, oh boy, when something goes wrong, who do they run is, to, man? They run yep, right to the It dad. is a tight, <laughs> tight bond. And so we, men, we have an impact on our sons. We have an impact on our daughters. We, uh, we, we, are, we haven't done our jobs well enough. And I, I think that's the biggest problem in this country right now. We've got to step back up. And that, that's why I'm involved with All Pro Dad. And I keep talking about fatherhood not because the, the women aren't strong, not because the women aren't great, not because they aren't necessary, because we haven't done a great job as men in this country passing life lessons on to our kids. You know, coaching, you coach for a long time and, you know, you, you, you have so many kids and you, you've adopted and you've done such a great job with all this. Did you have to learn how to be present as a father, or was this just a natural thing for you, given all the rigors of coaching? I, I was really, really fortunate, Dan. Uh, my first coach with the Steelers was a man named Chuck Knoll. Dynamic coach, great coach, Hall of Famer, um, just tremendous. But the first thing he told us in the first meeting I had as a rookie there, he said, do not make football your whole life. You can't make football your whole life, or you're going to be very, very disappointed. You've got to blend into this community, make things happen. You've got to be a family person. We had practices every Saturday. It was called Family Saturday. You brought your kids. Players brought their kids. Coaches brought their kids. He wanted everybody to be together on that day to let those kids know that, yeah, okay, dad's been gone Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and put in a lot of work here at the stadium. But you know what? You guys are important. And you need to see where dad works and you need to meet the other kids in, in this on this team. And we did that for years. And I took that with me to Tampa Bay. I took it with me to Indianapolis. A lot of the coaches that work for me took that philosophy. And Mike Tomlin still has family Saturday um, with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Uh, Lovey Smith had it in Chicago. Um, Leslie Frazier had it when he was the head coach in Minnesota. Jim Caldwell had it in Detroit. Uh, because those guys understand we're not just coaching athletes to be better players. Uh, we're trying to build that whole thing together, and, and it is important. So I learned early on, you can't just pour everything into your career. I'm not going to sleep at the office. I'm not going to spend my whole time there and neglect my, my kids. It's just the, the game is not that important. Coach, I remember you as a quarterback at Minnesota. I remember you, you were a dynamic quarterback. You were the most valuable player. I don't know. Maybe you were the most valuable player in the Big Ten. I can't remember. But I know you were Minnesota's because I followed all this. I followed the silver trophy yeah. award in the Chicago Tribune growing up in Gary, Indiana, right? So I knew the most valuable players. Um, did you ever, when you went to the Steelers, did you ever 
did you ever try to be a quarterback? Because all of a sudden, Tony Dungy's a defensive player. And I'm like, no, he's not. He's a quarterback. But I was a kid. Man, uh, I played quarterback my whole life from the sixth grade on uh, all the way through college. I did lead the Big Ten in passing twice. Uh, I thought I was going to be a, a professional quarterback. Uh, the Montreal Alouettes in the Canadian League had my rights. Marv Levy was the head coach. Bill Polin was the general manager. And they tried to talk me into signing before the draft uh, in Canada. Offered me a big signing bonus. You'll get to play quarterback. Your style is great for here. Uh, I played a game my senior year against the University of Washington. I was leading the Big Ten in passing. Warren Moon was leading the Pac-10 in passing. Uh, they beat us. Season goes forward. Neither one of us ended up getting drafted. Warren did go to Canada to continue to play quarterback. Uh, I just wanted to play in the NFL, so I went to the Steelers and switched positions. I never really thought much about it after that, but uh, we played a game in Houston my rookie year, and our Terry Bradshaw got hurt. Our backup quarterback got hurt. I finished the game in the fourth quarter playing quarterback. And after that, even though I threw two interceptions, I had never practiced with those guys. And I'm out there throwing passes to Lynn Swan and John Stallworth without ever practicing. I knew I could have done it if I got, got a chance. Uh, so I kind of just forgot about it after that and went on and played defense. Joe Gilliam was there, was he not? Was, was Hanratty there, that whole deal? Joe Gillum and, and uh, Terry Hanratty had left the year before. They were the backup quarterbacks behind Bradshaw. Joe was a dynamic player, uh, really probably didn't get a chance to show what he could do. But unfortunately, that's the way it was for a lot of African-American quarterbacks back then in the late 60s, early 70s. Um, it just, I, I don't know what, what the reason was. Coaches were afraid to think outside the box. Maybe they didn't look at everything, but but Joe was fabulous. Um, actually started the season, our first Super Bowl year in 74. He was the starting quarterback ahead of Terry Bradshaw. So that's the kind of talent he had. Um, but it was, a, it was a different era back then. Yeah, it's a sad era, really. I mean, you look at what Warren Mood became. You look at yeah. – I remember Joe Gilliam was on a cover of Sports Illustrated. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. and it, I yeah. think the title was – Pittsburgh black quarterback. Black quarterback. It sure was. It sure yeah. was. Yeah. Uh, there's another guy who um, I was. I followed. He was actually one of my heroes, Chuck Ely. Uh, he was from Ohio. Never lost a game in high school. Wasn't highly recruited. Went to the University of Toledo. Never lost a game in college. 35 and 0 at Toledo. Didn't get drafted. Went to Canada. Won the Grey Cup his first year as a rookie quarterback there. Still never got a chance to come play quarterback in Canada. And this is 40 years later now. He just went into the College Football Hall of Fame. But I'm thinking, how can you be undefeated, never lose a game, and not be in the, in the College Football Hall of Fame? So um, it was a different era for sure. I remember, Chuck, when I was at Bowling Green, I'd, yeah. I'd kind of researched Bowling Green. And, you know, they talked to all the coaches and Toledo and Chuck. I, I would, if you were going to ask me, I'd have bet Chuck was in two minutes after he got to play based on what the man did. No, <laughs> you know just, just got in this year. Just got in the Hall of Fame this year. So. I don't think, I, you know, I, I hear quarterbacks now talking about that, and, and I think they're right. I mean, I don't know, you know, you would know the scrutiny better than me, but I, do you think young African American quarterbacks understand the road that was paid for them and, and what guys went through? 
and the, and the, what's the right word? The stupidity is one of the words, but the unfairness is another. I think a lot of them do understand the history and they, they do know that. Um, it, it's just, I kind of marvel now because my kids, you know, I've got my two boys wear Lamar Jackson jerseys and they love Lamar. And I, I try to tell them, you know, we had some Lamar Jackson back <laughs> when I played that would have done the same thing. Charlie Ward to me would have been Joe Montana. Charlie Ward was a dynamic player, a great leader. They, win the national championship, he wins the Heisman Trophy, and he doesn't get drafted. And he goes to, he's six foot one, and he goes to the NBA and plays for years because he's just got that kind of drive and determination. He's a leader. And I'm trying to say to myself, that point guard mentality wouldn't have translated out onto the football field. I'm sure it would have. Um, But as we say, it was a, a different time and different thought process. Charlie Ward wasn't that long ago. I mean, he was in the early 90s. We coached 90s, against yeah. him. Yeah, yes. we had Calvert Shaney and those guys in Indiana yeah. two straight years. We played him in the tournament. And if you couldn't tell Charlie I, – I remember talking to the team about Charlie Ward. I was a scout, right? And I'm like, look, this guy controls it. They got this pro, that pro, this pro, that yeah. pro. This guy controls the entire team, including the coaching staff. <laughs> and, yeah, I mean, he yeah. did. He did. Charlie we, Ward – did the most phenomenal, most phenomenal athletic achievement I can ever remember. He plays in the national championship game and he's playing January 1st for the football team. And three days later goes out and they beat university of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And I'm saying, how can you on two days of practice go be the best player on the floor with all these future NBA players. It was unbelievable. I remember that. I remember that like it was yesterday. You know who else does, does things like that? Your former partner, Tariko. So Mike, <laughs> Mike is calling the Alabama, Alabama Notre Dame National Championship football game. The next day, he and I are broadcasting the Louisville, Michigan State basketball game Tuesday. Monday night's a football game. I show up. We're there. At a shoot around, coach, at like 10 o'clock in the morning, a shoot around. Who's the who beat us to the ballpark? Who beat us to Mike Tarico, coach? I've seen it. I've seen it last year. He's over in Tokyo talking about track and field. And the next day, he's at the Super Bowl. And I'm saying, How did you get here from Japan? And you're going to broadcast the Super Bowl and never miss the beat. Had one of the, the greatest performances ever, but they, he's a super talented guy. Man. We used to say, where are you going tomorrow? Stad to call the weightlifting. What do you got? <laughs> and you got, you know, <laughs> where, where are you headed, MT? Hey, coach, uh, so far, NFL. Uh, what do you think last night? Amazon Prime comes in. What do you think? Well, I actually listened to the broadcast on the NFL app. And so – you know, I thought I was worried about Kirk Herbstreit. Same thing. He's doing college games and he's doing game day and the studio show there. And then he's broadcasting. He was very, very good. He was on top of the details. Uh, I thought they had a good broadcast. Uh, technically, it was good. They showed a lot of great replays. So I, I was pleased with it as a viewer. What do you think so far of the NFL? In particular, what do you think? What are your thoughts on the Chiefs? I feel like Mahomes caught more criticism in the offseason than maybe he had in his entire career. Been pretty good, boss. 
He's two and zero in some difficult, you know, one road game, one good team at home. Uh, he's got new receivers. I still think they need to run the ball a little bit more and a little bit more effectively. But Mahomes is good. Andy Reid is a great coach. Eric Bieniemy, they've they've got things in place. They're going to be tough to beat. Uh, I, I do think. I think Andy Reid knows how to get his teams ready. I think they practice a little more diligently. They play their guys in the preseason. I'm big. I'm on that soapbox. I don't understand these coaches that do not play their players in the preseason. They're afraid of getting people hurt. And we saw people, Cincinnati came out and didn't play their type of game week one. Um, we, You know, the Rams didn't play their type of game week one. So I, I think we're going to see – Maybe in October we'll see what this is really all going to shake out. But um, I, I, I just think that maybe we're a little too much into taking care of people and not enough into getting people ready. How, how much do you spend as a coach on that, the fine line? We had a, a system. I, I loved it. I got it from Coach Noel, and we kind of built it up every week. And I had a good idea where our team was. and. Uh, if we were going to be effective coming out of training camp, um, we knew how much to play, how much to practice. I'd help. We had a great quarterback, but we got, but we were five and zero in two thousand three. We were nine and zero in two thousand five, nine and zero in two thousand six. We got out of the gate well because I thought we were prepared and we were ready. Um, I just don't understand this. And I talked to some of my buddies that are still in coaching. Part of it is the collective bargaining agreement. You can't do as much. Uh, but part of it is now coaches are afraid of the salary cap and afraid if I get this person hurt, it's going to ruin my whole team. So I'd rather kind of ease into things. While we always want to get off to a great start and make people catch us, get two or three games ahead of the pack and, and let them have the pressure to try to chase us down. Jim Ursay was nice, and he called me provocative on the radio in Indianapolis. I, the better word is a, <laughs> that's a better word for what? <laughs> yeah, that, pain I, in I the like neck. That. Yeah, I like that a lot better, Coach. I he he came over, he gave it was really nice of him and all that stuff. And I know it's to to your point about the Colts. I, when I started on the radio in Indy, you guys were doing what you said. You, you guys were off to great starts. I feel like the Colts. I feel like it's difficult. You're always swimming upstream when you don't when, when you're one in five. Yeah, you make a great run, but you're always you're always swimming upstream, coach. I was shocked. I didn't know this, but uh, on our show, um, we pointed out Colts are going for their first opening day win in like nine years. I'm, I, I couldn't believe it. I said, "No, that that can't be true." And they said, "No, that is true. They have not won an opening game in, in all this time," and that's. Uh, I, I don't know. To me, that does put you behind the eight ball. How big, like, like when you're coaching in the NFL, um, in college, you know, you, you want the community support. But it, it NFL is a business where your success, you, Peyton, and Mr. Polian, led to renovation of downtown, businesses exploding, a new stadium. I mean, it's so freaking big. Does that ever factor into your thinking during this at any part as a coach? Oh, it absolutely does. I went through that twice. Uh, when I got the job in Tampa in 1996, there was a stadium boat coming up and it had already failed twice. And my bosses were saying, hey, we don't want to put pressure on you, but we, we've got to put a good team out there to pass this thing. And people are saying, hey, 
we want the stadium to pass. We don't want the team to move. We don't want you to end up in Cleveland or, or Connecticut somewhere. And so you feel that, you know, you want to, you know, get things going. In Annapolis, the same way, uh, we had that stadium vote coming. And by that time, we were rolling pretty good. So I, I was pretty confident it was going to pass. But I did not want to be involved in the team moving and people saying, oh, we used to have the Colts here, but we don't have them anymore. Uh, we wanted to, to provide that spark, and winning certainly helps that. Isn't it amazing how everything before but doesn't matter once they say but? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you're right. You're right. Hey, we're I'll all put on your coach. <laughs> but we have to win. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Hey, when when you go look and you look back at your career, um, and you have you were so influential again, off the field, on the field, so many great memories. But when you look back on it, and you think about Peyton Manning, what are your thoughts as a guy who was with him? Well, I, I think he was one of the most dynamic and in, influential players in in this generation, maybe in the history of the league, uh, the things that he did, uh, the things that he's changed in quarterback play and the, the way that Indianapolis has changed. I mean, when I got there, it was IU basketball was number one, no question about it. Then maybe Notre Dame football, Pacers for sure. The, the Colts were maybe number five, number six on the totem pole. And now you had people naming their kids Peyton. <laughs> right. Know, uh, right. It, it, it's a, a different vibe. And he was part of that. And um, just the connection that the Colts have with the community and the way people feel about the Colts as a franchise, he was a big, big part of that. You know, it's funny. We do studies on this, you know, for a radio show and demographics. And when I first started, it was 2008. Colts and IU basketball had gotten about here. Maybe IU basketball mm -hmm. still mm -hmm. a little still, yep. Yeah. But I'm telling you now, I get memos all the time, talk Colts every day. Wait, what do you mean? It's June. I don't care. Talk Colts every day. You know, <laughs> yeah. what about IU basketball? Well, if they get, you know, what about it? it you, I, and I've said this all the time, you, Peyton, Polian, were the foundation of it, in my opinion, Jimmy Ursay. And everybody else around it, you guys were smart enough to build something not only internally but externally that resonated with a basketball crazy state. It's unbelievable, truthfully. It is. No, you're right. Uh, Jim Ursay, I can still remember this. He called me in 2002. He said, I want you to be our coach. We need to make a connection with the city. We've been here 20 years, but we don't have those people that they went to the games with their grandkids and kids grew up being Colts fans. We've got to nurture that and we want to do that we want to connect on and off the field yeah i want to put a great team out there but we've got to connect off the field and, and i think we did that in the early 2000s and i think one of the great things about you and that group and i say this about you know great coaches you're not you haven't been how long have you been retired from the Colts? seven years 14 years 14 years <laughs> this is my 14th season on uh nbc yeah Wow. Well, I'm, I got to tell you, and, and it makes it even better. Uh, your lasting impact here is incredible. It really is. It, 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 because 
coaches have come. What we've had, what we've had, uh, we had Caldwell, who I think got screwed here, and I'm still mad about it. But uh, Chuck, Chuck, yeah, and now, and now we've Frank. got Frank. And I'm telling you, and this is what I really have come to admire because I, you know, you're coaching at Bowling Green. I pay attention to, you know, I watch you guys, but then I really, you're, you guys, you're, you resonate still. Like big time still. Your shadow is over the entire place. You you uh Peyton and, and uh Bill and it's it's not all Peyton. It is when's your statue going up in uh, uh in Indy? When's that going? No, I don't know about that, Dan, but that is gratifying. Um I appreciate it when I go back to Indianapolis and people do recognize you and they talk about that. I live in Tampa now and uh it's been twenty-five years since I coached in Tampa and I walk around the city now and Derek Brooks, who played for me, has a charter high school or K through 12 school here. Warwick Dunn uh, has done some hundred homes for single moms here. Mike Allstott is a high school coach and uh, helping young men become better. So many of these guys are here still in town 25 years later doing things that the community appreciates. And it's not just winning games and and you know, division championship flags and, and Super Bowls. They they appreciate that. But, hey, the impact that those guys are still having, that that's what's really important. Last time you talked to Jimmy Ursa? Uh, I talked to him probably this offseason. Uh, we were actually talking about the uh, uh, Kick the Stigma campaign that they have going and uh, how we could uh, do that a little bit better. So, yeah, we, we talked. wasn't about football, but that's the, the last I talked to him. Coach, I, I, I got to tell you, I, my man, my man, my man got excited at the end of last year, coach. He was putting videos out. He was, <laughs> I, I was watching him. I was, I was seeing them and, uh, I just, uh, yeah, he's, he's that he's passionate though, as a yeah. owner and as a coach, I can appreciate that. It wasn't just a, Oh, Hey, sorry, we lost. We'll get him next time. Or, Hey, you guys did a good job. No, it it was meaningful to him. Uh, the, the fans are special to him. He wants to put a good football team out there, and you appreciate that working for him. Yeah, and last thing before I let you go, it's got to be great working for a guy like that as opposed to a corporation or, or a Absolutely. corporate feel, right? Absolutely. He um, is very, very cognizant of what's going on. He's there every day. He's there for his players. Any player that had a problem or an issue, he was there for them. Any coach that had something that needed to be done, he was there for you. Um, just being around and being supportive, uh, it makes all the difference in the world. Yeah. Coach, I appreciate you, man. Thanks for coming. I know you're busy, and I appreciate I've kept you too long, but I've had a great uh, time talking to you. Great to be on with you, Dan. Thank you. Thank you, Coach. All right. uh, that's Coach you. Tony Dungy. And what a great, great guy. What a great conversation. I can't even tell you uh, how much he has meant to the city of Indianapolis. All right, let's make you some money. But I got to charge these for two minutes. We'll be right back. We'll be right back. Got to take a short break here. We are rolling with Don't At Me, and you don't want to miss it. Stay tuned. Uh, don't At Me. We've gone from everything from... Tommy Lauren, who was on earlier talking about having to be barricaded in a room, Coach Dungy, fatherhood. We've got a great day, and I don't know. We're not twins because he has hair. 
However, when you look here, we got lamps, we got red. We're rocking and rolling, my man, Jeffrey. How are you, my friend? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me back. I was saying before, I'm honored to be following a, a pro football Hall of Famer. So hopefully I can keep this uh, the show on pace and, and, and provide some winners for the Don't At Me listeners and, and viewers. I, I got to tell you, uh, we need some. We do. Uh, we, we, we legitimately, I have not been uh, the greatest, what's the right word, gambler. I've given people loss. So let's get right into it. As we look around this weekend, what are you looking at? Give me something good. Yeah, I'm going to take the points with Nebraska uh, plus 11. So there's a lot of people that do what I do, right? Public handicappers. So one of the things that I, I one of the first things that I do when I handicap college football is I'll just go to Twitter and I'll search, in this case, Oklahoma, Nebraska bet. And I'll actually scroll through and read what people are picking. No one is picking Nebraska. Everyone's laying the points to Oklahoma on the road for the most obvious reason, right? Scott Frost just got fired. Nebraska just lost to Georgia Southern, right? But where people see disarray and they're not wrong, I see an opportunity. So in my opinion, I have like a little theory that coach firings and football have more of an immediate impact than any other sport because most of the players are on that team because a coach vouches for them. So when the coach gets fired and the head guy gets fired, the whole team is like, oh, no, am I next? So that gets an immediate jolt um, and and will provide an immediate energy for the team. So Nebraska also actually has the higher rated uh, graded PFF quarterback and Casey Thompson over Dylan Gabriel. And Oklahoma was favored uh, 22 and a half points in last year's meeting with Nebraska at home and couldn't cover that spread. So I, I know uh, Mickey Joseph, the, the interim head coach for Nebraska is a wild card. No one knows what to expect, but he almost can't be worse than Scott Frost. So it's mostly a fade the public. Literally, like everyone is picking up. The, the funniest thing that I saw is I went to a Cornhusker fan website and they picked Oklahoma 38-20. Oh. No, you never see a fan site pick their team to lose and lose against the spread. So uh, I'm going to be by myself, but roughly 90% of the money is on Oklahoma. This is a primetime game, a big noon kickoff game. So you know the sports books aren't going to want to take a bath on this game. I'm going to get on the same size of sports books and take the 11 when Nebraska. Yeah, it is only 11, which is enticing to a lot of people. Uh, I like the theory. I like the research. I like it a lot, actually. Uh, what else do you like? Because I'm writing these down, big boy. Yeah, no, I need to have a redemption episode. Uh, after the two stinkers that I gave out last time, my last appearance here, I actually went six and one following that. I was so mad that I gave That's your, why your you're listeners. Back. Yeah, I gave your <laughs> I gave your listeners losers, and I have to redeem myself. So the next game that I'm looking at another uh, top twenty five matchup. Uh, I think it's a low point for Texas A and M, so I'll lay the six points with Texas A and M. Very uh, against Miami, excuse me. Uh, very similar handicap in the sense that everyone is taking the points with Miami, and there's a expression in handicapping called uh, that goes public dogs get slaughtered. So a public favorite that's uh, or a public underdog that's a favorite typically underperforms uh, against the spread. And we know the SEC 
just owns every other conference. Well, the ACC, whenever the SEC and the ACC meet, it gets way worse. Over the last five years, the SEC is 19 and one straight up versus the ACC, the ACC, excuse me, and 15 and five against the number. So the SEC owns the ACC. Miami's going to be without their star wide receiver. Texas A&M finally made a starting quarterback uh, change, bringing in Max Johnson this morning. They obviously have a lot more talent. It's supposed to be the fourth biggest crowd ever at Kyle Field. They're going to they're going to they're going to jam pack that stadium. They're going to be going nuts out there. And I think Texas A&M, uh, mostly with their defense, does does pummel Miami. You know, one of the things in coaching, when you start a guy or guys coming back from injury. Most coaches will tell you the first game back, the guy's pretty good, like really good. Like we were talking, I'm, I'm at a funeral for one of my former players and a bunch of us former players went out last night and we were talking about. One of our guys, kid named Trent Jackson, we're like, do you remember how great Trent was the first game he got eligible from Ohio State? And I'm like, yeah, that's what happens in coaching. So I'm all in on your pick of Texas A&M. I think the new quarterback's going to be good. I don't know if he's going to be great, but he's not going to be bad is the way I look. I think he's going to be good enough, if not really good for a game. What else you like? Uh, well, I would move over to the NFL at this point. That's all I got for college football. Um, I'm, I'm looking at the New Orleans Saints. I'm going to take the two and a half as they host the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Uh, the Saints own the Buccaneers in the regular season uh, since Tom Brady came to Tampa. They're 4-0 straight up, 4-0 against the spread. They're covering the spread by an average of 20 points in those four meetings, and there's really no secret why. New Orleans defense just pummels and mashes Tampa Bay's offense. Now, they look, they struggled last week against Mariota and the Atlanta Falcons, but the Atlanta Falcons – do have some good players between Cordell Patterson and Kyle Pitts. And Marcus Mariota obviously adds an athletic dynamic that New Orleans doesn't have to prepare for with Tom Brady. Obviously, Tom Brady, much better quarterback, different type of preparation, but they don't have to worry about him taking off. Also, Tampa Bay is really banged up. Mike Evans, Julio Jones, Chris Godwin, none of them practiced this week. Donovan Smith, the right tackle, exited last week's uh, Sunday night football game against Dallas. He's not practicing the whole week. And if he doesn't play, Tampa Bay could be without three starting offensive linemen from last year's team. And Rob Gronkowski retired. He was huge, as, as a, obviously, as a receiving and a blocking um, uh, threat in that offense. So uh, I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting what I actually think is the better team at home, uh, plus points against a Bucs team that, frankly, did not look good on Sunday Night Football. That win was more Dallas's being pathetic and, and, and Dallas, Dak, Dak's injury. So I'll go ahead and take the points with New Orleans. I obviously think they get it done in the money line, but I'm kind of a, uh, I, I'm, I'm kind of a nit in the sense that I, I always take the points if I can. I'm taking that one, too. I, I, I like that one. What else you got? Yeah, I actually do like both uh, Monday Night Football games. I'm going to take the Philadelphia Eagles as the better of the two, minus two. It's minus 115. You uh, can get that on DraftKings. They're, they're actually a sponsor of Outkick Bets, my podcast. Uh, they they offer a bunch of promotional, um, promotional stuff, and you can get uh, a promotional thing through outkick.com backslash bet to get started with DraftKings. But I'm going to lay the two with the Eagles because um, the Minnesota Vikings was 
their their victory over Green Bay, in my opinion, was the biggest week one overreaction. Everyone thinks Miami is legit, or excuse me, Minnesota is legit after beating Green Bay. But to me, that was more about what Green Bay was missing. They were also without three starting wide receivers from last year's team. Devontae Adams obviously went to the Raiders. Uh, Valdez Scantling went to the Chiefs. And Alan Lazard was out with injuries. They were also without both starting tackles. And the funniest thing about Green Bay, uh, in my opinion, is Aaron Rodgers and his offseason extending to the regular season. This guy hasn't – he doesn't care about football right now. He's doing Rogan. He's doing Marr. He's doing he's, – he might come on Don't At Me. He's, he did Pat McAfee. Like, this guy is everywhere and and not really focused on football right now. So – and uh, I thought the Green Bay defensive lapses were more the reason why Minnesota's offense looked good. And everyone's mad at Philly for not covering against Detroit, but Detroit's feisty. They they cover spreads, a backdoor cover. They did it all last year in Dan Campbell's first season. And Philly was up 17 going into the fourth quarter. They just took their foot off the gas. So, uh, and the final thing, and the most important thing is, is you can set your watch to Kirk Cousin pissing down his leg in Monday Night Football. He, he's two and... He's two and nine. Um, he's two and nine in, in preseason. Oh, I'm sorry. Did you lose me? No. He's a. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I lost your feet. So he's okay. two and nine in pre in, uh, in Monday Night Football. His only two wins were against Chicago when they had Nick Foles and Justin Fields starting. Um, he he only scored. The Vikings only scored seventeen and nineteen points in those two meetings. So it's not like Minnesota's offense did anything. So. Kirk Cousins is going to struggle in prime time like he always does. I think Philly's um, just physical. Um, uh, I think they're going to overwhelm Minnesota physically in that spot. You know, it is, it, there are certain quarterbacks that when they play poorly, we still give them credit. There are other quarterbacks that when they play well, we're like, okay, it's just a matter of time. And I think Cousins is the poster child for the latter. Like, I thought he was really good against Green Bay. I happened to watch a lot of that game. I agree with you. I don't know that Aaron Rodgers gives a rat's. Now, people say, well, you don't remember last year. They started out bad. They got trounced. Fine. That's last year. But you're right. Like, at the end, as a coach, uh, Jeff, I'm sitting there going, wait a second. You're on all these different things during the week. Let, let's go. Let's, let's, let's get some football here. Yeah, he's talking, he's smoking cigars, talking COVID, and hey, whatever, do your thing. I just, you know, it's week two, Aaron, like get locked into football. And he's probably going to be in the running for MVP by the end of the year. Green Bay will probably win 10 games, so it'll all be good. But, you know, he laid a stinker last year and laid a stinker this year. And yeah, like everyone loves Minnesota's offense, but like how many times is Justin Jefferson running wide open in the middle of the field? And like everyone's like, oh, Kirk Cousins, Kirk Cousins is back, or Kirk Cousins looks better in this new offense. He had, I think, 277 yards. 190 of them were to Justin Jefferson, right? Like, like Philly is not going to allow Justin Jefferson to be that wide open. Kirk Cousins is going to have to throw him open in this game, and he's just never done that in primetime spots. All right, I'm going to go through mine with you. You ready? Love it. Let's do it. I'm not in love with this pick. I'm not in love with. But I'm going to take the Jaguars plus four against the Colts. Um, 
I, I have two people and only two people that not only two, but that, that played and coached in the NFL. And they both told me the same thing. This dynamic, this Jacksonville team is unknown, maybe horrible, but it's got more dynamic players on it than what Houston had last week. Colts are banged up. Colts actually are so banged up that they went through a walkthrough today, which is going to be interesting. Again, from a coaching perspective, Jeff, is a walkthrough better than a practice? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Colts have never done it. Never. But they're doing it today on a normal practice day. So that's my <laughs> That's my pick there. Did you like Lawrence last week? Did you like anything about Tampa last week? Um, I like Lawrence. I bought all of his low stock last year. Um, I think he's going to be a franchise quarterback, but Jacksonville does suck. <laughs> They've won four <laughs> games over the last two years, right? Like there's a reason and it's, and, and, and you know, um, also last week, like, yeah, the Colts are very disappointing. Tying in a game against the Houston Texans projected to finish last in the AFC South. Um, they were seven-point favorites going to that game, but they outgained Houston by 200 yards. <laughs> like, it was just – I think it was just, like, first-game jitters, Matt Ryan in the new system. And to me, the, the three-and-a-half or four does feel cheap. But then again, to your earlier point – when I saw the injury report, is kind of, I just walked away from the game, you know, yeah. because I do like Jacksonville long term with Lawrence and Peterson. I don't like them short term, but the injury report is makes it a stay away from me. No, I get you got that. in your card. Uh, I got the Dolphins, Ravens under twenty one and a half, or under twenty one and a half in the first half. I love that. Yeah. Really. Uh, yeah, Baltimore's offense was complete trash against New York's defense. New York's defense might be better this year because Robert Sala was a good defensive coordinator for the 49ers, but it was terrible last year. Uh, they don't have a ton of talent. And um, just like the Jets provided no offensive resistance. So like the, the Baltimore Ravens just kept on getting uh, drive after drive after drive. Um, and I, to me, they didn't look very good. And their defense um, got back a lot of players from injury last year, this year, excuse me. And uh, Miami's Miami's offense struggled a little bit outside of getting Tyreek Hill and, and, and Jalen Waddle the ball. They, they weren't so efficient. So I do like that underlook in that game. I also took the Saints. I did what you did. I, I took the Saints. I, I, I just feel like, all right, maybe I'm the only human being alive. But I like Jameis Winston. I think Jameis Winston – go ahead. I love Jameis. I'm with you. Go ahead. Keep going. Well, I just think, you know, last week all of a sudden he's going along. They're struggling to down 16 in the fourth quarter. Bam, bam, two touchdowns. Bam, field goal position. I think – I just – I. he's going to be Jose Canseco. He's going to be a 40-40 guy. 40 turnovers, 40, 40 touchdowns. But I just think this is one of those – he's one of those guys that appreciates the greatness of Tom Brady, which means he appreciates kicking his backside. And I think the New Orleans team I, – I, I would take this money line like what you said. I would. I, I would do that. Did you get the three already? Because I, I bet Saints plus three earlier this week. I still gave it out at two and a half. But did you get the three or you – No, you I wish I had. I, I got it at two and a half. And I'm going to keep looking. I'm hoping that everybody likes – uh, and, and, and pops it up. And I, I got two and a half. I wish I got three. If I got three and a half, I would make what I call a DoorDash 
slash mortgage bet, which is if I win, <laughs> I'm paying the mortgage. If I lose, I got a door dash. You know what I mean? Yeah, but, the, the rent check bet. I'm with you. Yes, absolutely. Hey, all right. And I'm taking Buffalo in college to beat Uh-oh. Coastal Carolina. Buffalo in college. Now, not, not Coastal Carolina is 2-0. and Buffalo is 0-2. Coastal Carolina barely, barely over Gardner-Webb. Like Gardner Webb, wait, am I right about? Yeah, Gardner Webb was a school that my college coach told me if you keep playing like this, I'm sending you to Gardner Webb. <laughs> he goes, you don't even know where Gardner Webb is. I go, yeah, I do. It's in North Carolina. Sammy Drummer played there, and my college coach Bob Knight loved me because I knew that answer. They beat Army, who stinks this year. They beat barely uh, Coastal Carol or uh, Gardner Webb. Buffalo is gonna trounce. This is my big money bet of the weekend, big boy. All right. The rent check bet. I love it. I'm not going to waste your time on that one because I know nothing about Coastal Carolina and Buffalo football. I'll uh, I'll follow you on that bet, though. I'll tell you on that one and put some action on it. What did you? What's the number that you got? 14, which seems like a lot, but it's not. In college, as you know, 14 could be two possessions and you're up 14. I think this is like a 35 to 10 drubbing. Uh, I don't know a single player on either team. I'm just going to tell you. But I know enough to know that I talked yesterday to a friend of mine that coaches in the MAC, and he said, let me tell you about Buffalo. They're 0-2. They're uber-talented. Take Buffalo. Uh, Don't worry about it. And away you go. I go, really? He goes, oh, yeah, Buffalo will be fine. They'll be fine. But anyway, that's a stupid bet. And, of course, I'm taking these guys right here. The road to a college football championship. Runs through Bloomington, Indiana, big boy. Minus six, Indiana, minus six and a half. It was, I just looked actually earlier today. Minus six and a half against Western Kentucky. <laughs> okay. All you right. don't know nothing about either team. I know, I know nothing about either team. I got to be and honest. you don't care about either team. No, I, 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 I mostly just focus on the games that I bet. Honestly, I kind of parachute into the college football season. I can more eyeball the NFL, uh, uh, baseball, and NBA, uh, college football. It takes me a lot of work to come up with these picks. Um, but going back to your uh, Buffalo analysis, I mean, if you got, for lack of a better word, insider information and intel from, from an expert, from someone who knows, then move on that. That's awesome. That's 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 how I make bets. If I can ever get some intel uh, from from someone in the know, then I'm gonna I'm gonna put action, get down on that game. So I'm with you. Yeah. There. Well, let me explain this to you. Buffalo lost last week to Holy Cross, and yet they're favorite by 14. You said yeah, 14. Right. That's yeah. Apparently, Vegas isn't overreacting to that loss. No. That's what the guy, guy's like, look, Buffalo's going to be just fine. Oh, no, yeah. wait a second. Buffalo's getting 14. Wait. Oh. I, they're going to win the game. Yeah, you, you, you better bet the alternate spread on that and get a, a I, you know what? I screwed that up because the guy told me, he goes, look, Buffalo's going to be just fine. And I thought when I put the bet out, I thought they were plus. I go, they're getting 14. He goes, that's your bet of the day. Because that's your Buffalo's got athletic ability. They're getting guys back. I forgot about that. I'm actually getting 14 points. I'll take 14 points in Buffalo today, tomorrow, the next day. So just flip everything you said. I mean, in college football, it's easy to backdoor cover on double-digit spreads. So there you go. 
Um, Seriously, Jeffrey, every day I make a monumental error on this show that is awesome. It's so ridiculously bad, not knowing whether you're getting or you're giving. Nobody owns their mistakes like me. In fact, I don't try to do it. It just happens every day on this show. Organically, I love that. People are probably like looking up Buffalo and their betting board and like, holy crap, he said they're going to win by 14. I'm getting 14. So yeah. we're just yeah. providing value to the, the, the don't at me listeners and viewers. Yeah. We're yeah. killing it here. What do you, yeah. what do you think? I, I don't know if you need me to get out of here, but what do you think about the other Monday night football game, Tennessee, Buffalo? That's where I thought you were going when you said Buffalo at first. And I know here's my deal with Tennessee. All right. And, and we know the quarterback situation, right? Like we know Tannehill, is he great? Is he not great? Well, my deal with Tennessee is this. The spread that I saw was either 10 or nine and a half. Mike Vrabel, in my opinion, they're not going to throw two horse bleep performances back to back. I would take 10 for 100. I would take 10 today, tomorrow, the next day. I did just look it up. It is now nine and a half. I would take, I'm telling you, I know Buffalo is great. But I would take Tennessee in this if I can get it at 10. I'm going to take an alternate spread on it. I talked about this in my week one uh, Outkick Bets podcast. And I, like, predicted this scenario. I said the Tennessee Titans were going to lay an egg in week one, the Giants, whether or not they lost or just didn't cover the spread. I have Buffalo as my power-rated team, as my number one power-rated team, as is everyone. They're getting the most bets to win the Super Bowl. Sure. And I knew they were going to just – beat the crap out of the Rams. So I said this on my podcast and like people are going to overreact to the bills beating up on the Rams. And then they're going to get confirmation bias on the Titans struggling against the giants. Cause most like quasi sharp pseudo sharps peg the Tennessee Titans for regression this year. So it's like confirmation bias. And I knew there'd be an overreaction. So the look ahead line was Tennessee plus seven. Now it's plus 10 based on a situation I kind of saw coming. I'm with you. Everyone looks at Mike Vrabel like some meathead jock. When that guy is buttoned up situationally, his team always comes out ready to play. They're a physical team. They've played really well against the Buffalo Bills over the last few years. And they don't cover big numbers, well, laying big numbers, but Mike Vrabel and the Tennessee Titans as dogs are, are very, very profitable. So I'm with you. I'm hitting the Tennessee Titans. Um, I'd play it down to eight and a half, to be honest, but I'm definitely taking it at, at nine and a half or 10. And the thing about that is it went from 10 to nine and a half. According to DraftKings, 80% of the money is on the Buffalo Bills. So I don't know why that line's moving towards Tennessee. That's That's suspicious. You know, to me, Vrabel's just the kind of guy that that they all respect. They 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 not only respect, but he, as you said, he's tactically terrific. You know, people forget. I know it's a crappy division last year, but they were the number one seed. Derrick Henry did not look great. I guarantee you, the accountability in that room and that in that office or facility, whatever you call it, is incredible this week because of how they lost. You know, they were in the lead. They had it going. They laid an egg. But it does come down to this. It does come down to whether Tannehill – I think there's some cracks in the Titans. Like, I think Tannehill isn't mentally strong enough or established enough 
to not hear what people are saying about the future of Malik Willis. And I'm not saying that's fatal, but I'm saying it's a little bit of a crack. And they had no cracks last year for most of that year, if not all that year last year. I think that's a fair point, but I also look at some of the roster, including Ryan Tannehill and then like Derrick Henry, Taylor Lewan, Ryan Tannehill, and they're all looking at each other like this is like we got to show show the organization we're still worth the money, right? Or else we're probably all going to be released or cut next year. So it's kind of like a last hurrah for this team. And, you know, Mike Vrabel can speak to them on a a professional level because you know, this guy's won Super Bowls, you know, he he understands how it goes. So I think he's going to rally the troops. I think the Titans are going to keep it close. I, the money line is so, is so chunky that it's hard to not sprink on it. Plus 370. I might sprink on it, but I'm definitely taking the points of the Titans. I'm with you there. I agree. Or hey man, when you on next, give me, tell us, tell everybody where they can find you. So I, uh, I host a, a podcast, Outkick Bets, with me, Jeff Clark. Uh, it releases every Wednesday. I might do it uh, uh, more routinely, definitely when the NBA season comes. Um, but, you know, as the NFL season heats up, I might be hitting up um, Monday night and Thursday night podcast. But as of right now, it's just uh, every Wednesday I'll be releasing a uh, an NFL weekly breakdown with someone from the sports betting community. Uh, I had Dan Z from Outkick join me week week one. Um, had a friend uh, from Sportsbook Review, Eston McLaren, join me for week two. So I'll be bringing in new uh, people every week to help me break down the NFL weekly slate. And it's Outkick Bets with me, Jeff Clark. I, I really appreciate you uh, inviting me on again, Dan. Always, brother. Let's win some money this week. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, brother. Peace. All right, we're going to be uh, – we're done. We're gone. We had a hell of a day today. We're going to make some money with Jeff. We had Gungeon on. We had Tommy Lauren on. I mean, what a week. Have a great weekend, everybody. Enjoy.